3: Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop Podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward/events.
0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for this online event. Um, We're all here to discuss and celebrate the publication of Christopher Hitchens, A Hitch in Time, which is a collection of his writings in the LRB. He was a prolific writer for the London Review of Books until 2001, when there was a parting of the ways, which I'm sure we will come to, post 9-11. This is a collection of his essays over the previous couple of decades. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about Christopher Hitchens today. He died in 2011, December 2011. So we're just beyond 10 years on from the anniversary of his death. And that produced quite a lot of interesting commentary and writing about his legacy, but also about how he might have fared in the current political and cultural climate. And I'm sure we'll get onto that too. If you have any questions, do please post them and we will come to those. We are also going to have a couple of readings, so you can get a flavour of the man himself. There is quite a lot to get through. Let me very briefly introduce our all-star transatlantic panel. We are joined by Lisa Appignanesi, the writer and broadcaster, James Wolcott, who was a colleague of Christopher Hitchens at Vanity Fair, but he's also written the introduction to this collection of essays. Janan Ganesh, who He's a columnist at the Financial Times and wrote one of the most notable of the pieces around the 10th anniversary of Christopher Hitchens' death about what he means today. And Ben Burgess, who is the author of Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. And we'll be talking about that too. So we've got a couple of readings, one from Lisa and one from Ben. We're going to start with Lisa. We'll, We'll come to Ben maybe halfway through as we get more onto the politics. We're starting with a bit of politics, but mainly with spanking, one of the most famous essays in the collection. Lisa is going to read the celebrated introduction of that essay.
4: I I can't do this as well as Hitch would have done. who was a great rhetorician in public, as you all know. And I think of this as the hanky spanky piece. Sometime in the late autumn of 1977, I went to a book party that was held in the Rosebery Room of the House of Lords. Why I went, I can't think. The volume was some piece of unreadable bufferdom, extruded by Lord Butler, who as rab, had never in his life done anything to live down the Greek street sobriquet, blabby-faced old coward. He himself was vaguely present, moving about the carpet like a terrible tortoise. A sprinkling of hacks and politicos completed the scene, which was identical to a score of similar gatherings, except in point of its grand setting. And then there was a sort of sensation at the door. And in came Margaret Thatcher. Rab's shell crackled and contracted a little as he tried to look flattered by the attention of his new leader, she whose whole purpose it was to cram Buckskillism as harshly as possible into the web of history. And I, reader, I was bewitched. A dull pre-dinner drink stop had been entirely transformed. You may have forgotten, but the regnant left-liberal idiocy of the period had it that Thatcher was a shrill, suburban, and narrow housewife, the outcome of a spasm of folly among the Tory backbenchers, unsound, unelectable, extreme. Shouldn't be long now before the voters remind us that politics, as Rab had once so originally said, is the art of the possible. Having observed her arresting qualities of domination at the previous Conservative Party conference. I had been ridiculed for writing in the New Statesman that she was a great fanged and clawed feline replete with sex and spite, her tawny whiskers flecked with cream past, cream present and cream to come. I exaggerate only slightly. And I wondered to myself, had she read my paragraph? Surely if you're the leader of the Tory party and the, the leading Journal of Socialist Opinion says that you're a bit of a bombshell, you get to hear about it. Would she recall that byline? Peregrine Wursthorn sportingly offered to introduce us. I eased my way over to her side. Wursthorn did his stop saying that he and I had just returned from a most interesting trip to Rhodesia. And here also was a good test because Thatcher had attacked the two-party consensus on the Smith-Muzurewa deal, suggesting that if elected, she would lift sanctions on Salisbury. At once we were in an argument. Of joshua and como, I remember her saying, I think joshua is absolutely sweet. That was the least of our disagreements. On one point of fact too abstruse to detail here, I was right as it happens, and she was wrong. But she would not concede this, and so rather than be a bore, I gave her the point and made a slight bow of acknowledgment. She pierced me with a glance. Thou lower, she commanded. With what I thought was an insouciant look, I bowed a little lower. No, no, much lower. A silence had taken over our group. I stooped lower with an odd sense of having lost all independent volition. Having arranged matters to her entire satisfaction, she produced from behind her back a rolled up parliamentary order paper and struck. No, she whacked me on the behind. I reattained the perpendicular with some difficulty. Naughty boy, she sang out over her shoulder as she flounced away. Nothing that happened to the country in the next dozen years surprised me in the least. So, I think that's a wonderful passage, but it does make me think that Brexit would have been something very interesting for Hitch to comment on, perhaps in a positive way, who knows?
0: Let, let, let's come on to that. That was the voice of the man himself. It was pretty essential. Hitchens. James, when you were reading these essays for this collection and writing your introductions, you worked with him, alongside him, you alternated columns with him in Vanity Fair. As I mentioned at the start, there was this break. He wrote for publications like the LRB, and then he stopped. Do you think, when you read these essays, is the voice consistent across time? Do you you think the LRB Hitchens and the Vanity Fair Hitchens absolutely come across as the same voice, the same writer, or
1: do do you feel the break? There's a break in in opinions, but the the voice is absolutely, uh, you know, solid all the way through. And it's, you know, no matter where he wrote. I mean, I I was in Ireland for two weeks once, cut off from media, and this coincided with the launching of Viagra, which I didn't understand what it was, but I I got to London and I read Hitchens' pieces on Viagra. And I'm like, what did I miss of these two weeks? But the, the pieces he wrote... And I think it was for—I don't know if it was Evening Standard—but it was, you know, not not one of the the high end. But it was is absolutely the same voice. It's sort of like H.L. Mencken. Wherever you read Mencken, no matter what the publication, what the decade you were reading Mencken, whatever opinions might have shifted or attitudes might have shifted.
0: And Ben, when when you were writing your books, so your book is based around a series of debates. He was also a prolific. The he is in many ways the king of YouTube. Does the voice carry through, or does the political difference, the thing that, that stands out? I think he took
1: a sharper edge afterwards. But, you know, he didn't write about politics nonstop. He wrote about a, a lot of other things, and and the voice was still there. I think maybe the, the mood behind it shifted, but that happens with any writer, unless they're an you know, automaton. Ben, what do you, what do you reckon?
2: I agree, and I and I think the same is true for the public debates that you know the voice stays the same, like the the way that he would approach these stays largely the same. You know, you watch Hitchens doing debates in the you know '90s as as a radical leftist, and like there's something that he did in 1997 where he and Jesse Jackson, oddly enough, were tag team debating two uh, writers for the National Review about the death penalty with. Ed Koch moderating for some reason, it's a very strange event, but like in that i mean he's he's certainly as hard on the death penalty as as he ever was you know in two thousand and nine on you know religion or or in you know debates about the uh, debates about the Iraq war, you know he repeatedly refers to it as a monstrous system of human sacrifice, a lot of the kinds of rhetorical flourishes you know change so i I think that the the content of the view I think that the level of saltiness certainly varies. Week to week, maybe even, I think even in the late 2000s, I think it depends a little bit on uh, on who he's arguing with. When he's arguing with his brother, Peter, who is the mirror image of him as a sort of paleocon isolationist who is also deeply religious, like, you know, there's, there's some gentleness there. You know, when he's arguing with George Galloway, definitely not. And I think the same is true of the earlier debates. But I think that the, the style is definitely consistent over time.
0: When you were reflecting on, on his legacy 10 years after his death and, and in your piece, you write a lot about the voice and the approach. Is there a kind of Hitchens project, do you think, that carries through over time? I mean, one of the things that really comes across when you read these LRB essays is he had an opinion on everything and everyone. I mean, he was incredibly judgmental. And often in passing, you know, you'd be in the middle of a sentence, there would be something in brackets in which someone or some movement or some idea is just dismissed and it yeah. gives the impression that it all holds together. Did it?
3: Well, yeah, and well, he had strong opinions on when a sommelier should intervene with the, the bottle of wine on a night out at a restaurant. And he had opinions on everything from microscopic social detail to, in the end, Iraq. For me, the, the stylistic break, and Martin Amos says this, was 1989. The Amos argument is that Hitchens lost some of that Marxist density in the prose when the war came down and he sort of loosened up he felt he no longer had to defend the idea of socialism or revolutionary socialism and he became looser funnier the cultural references in the pieces became wider and it's probably not a coincidence that he peaked just after that or or his career really took off after that remember he was already 40 when the war came down and he'd had a a, a successful career as a journalist but the the superstar status didn't come until the following decade, and I think the the loss of that Marxist intensity and slight stodginess sometimes is what liberated him to to become a star. But there is a consistency over time, I think, not just in style but also in viewpoint, which is this hatred of totalitarianism, and in many ways the the shame of his absence today is that he'd be spoilt for totalitarianisms to to have a go at, in a way that I don't think he quite was in the 1990s.
0: And in Hitch 22, his autobiography, and, and it's one of the essays in this collection, but in Hitch 22, you could say that the, in his own description, the pivotal moment is the Rushdie affair. That was his almost his favourite time, because yeah. apart from anything else, what he liked was to line the whole world up. And he was he liked things to be binary, particularly on questions of courage. I mean, Lisi, I think you uh, wrote some pieces around the same time in a collection he was part of. You edited a collection that he wrote a piece in around the time of the Rushdie affair. He, He relished it, didn't
4: he? Did he relish the affair? Well, you know, he came in on it rather later with American pen. But he was there at the beginning. I don't think he was quite as noisy about it as I remember around 89 as some other people. But I'm, I may be wrong in that, Janan then can, can correct me, because I don't remember all of Hitch's life in that way. Certainly by the time PEN America had taken up with Sontag Rushdie's case, and it became, um, you know, an, an international freedom of speech case. When it was in Britain, it was both politics, Islam, and freedom of speech. It had all those those corners to it. I, I wrote a book, I mean, I edited a book called The Rushdie File in 89, and there was nothing from Hitch in that, but made, it might have come straight after.
0: Both in his description and my sense of it, is the thing that he loved was the idea that it sorted the sheep out from the goats in terms of courage, you know, intellectual courage and and sort of moral courage. James, is that your sense of? I mean, he became that person, and then it almost applied across the board, including post 9/11. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I think I think he liked to. I think he liked those confrontations. You know, it was, uh, the question is, there were a lot, you know, it it always caught people in the middle who didn't have, there were people who had very mixed feelings about the the, the Rushdie business. And, of course, Iraq, uh, he, you know, he found himself castigating the people he had been working with for a decade or two. uh, And he found himself on the outside. And and part of, I think part of the uh, ill feeling about that whole period, I know we're jumping ahead to the, iraq but was that he didn't give a lot of people credit for genuine disagreement moral disagreement political disagreement whatever with the iraq invasion he attributed it you know you they start invoking orwell they start invoking oh you you lack the moral spine it was not about moral spine you know and uh, that you are willing to let hussein done it. well it, it wasn't that clear cut. I mean, Michael Kelly uh, also made the same sort of arguments at the uh, the Atlantic, and they personalized it with fellow pundits in a way that, you know, I, I think you know it left a lot of ill feeling. And then that was also the period he turned on some people personally he had been friends with for a long time. You probably don't need to go into that, but but you know there were a lot of uh, broken uh, uh, broken alliances. He steamed on, which is what he did. I mean, he was he was unstoppable that way, and and he was a he was a great hater. I mean, maybe
0: Ben, this is a time to maybe we could get Ben to read. I mean, one of the people he hated. Well, two of the people he hated were the Clintons.
1: One, one of his mantras at the Nation, which I also heard was came from Alexander Coburn, was when they would hire someone new, a new intern, he would ask them, "Is your hate pure?" And uh, I had heard it about both of them. So there was a sense of like he he didn't want the wishy washy. Ben, do you want to read a bit of, of Hitchens on Clinton?
2: Uh, sure. I will parenthetically say that that I actually I, I have always really disagreed with that Martin Amis take on 1989 as a break. I I actually think that's kind of completely wrong. But uh, be so go go and do that first. Then do that. Okay. First <laughs> sure. So <laughs> uh, why is so it wrong? I, I mean, I think the first thing to remember about Hitchin's socialism is that, you know, at his most radical point in the 60s and 70s, he was a Trotskyist. You know, the slogan of the group that he belonged to, the International Socialists, was neither Washington nor Moscow, but International Socialism. I I think the idea that, you know, he didn't feel the need to defend something, you know, after 1989 doesn't really make sense to me because he was always very opposed to the, the Soviet version of socialism or as he would have put it at the time, you know, it was called socialism. And I think that if you look at his his debates, for example, you mentioned earlier in both the 80s and 90s, the way he talks about socialism in both is identical. You can watch a debate he did in 1986, for example, him and John Judas with a couple of Ayn Rand Institute guys, and the position he takes in there is, is identical to the position he takes in the 1997 death penalty debate, which is to say, that in both cases his ideas about sort of political strategy to the extent that he had ideas about political strategy, I don't think that's really where he, he lived, that that's what he was most focused on, were social democratic, evolutionary, but you know the way he would describe his ultimate goals was very radical in both cases. And the totalitarianism point is really interesting too because you can see early essays by Hitchens where he really mocks the word totalitarianism, which became like his favorite word in the 2000s and says it's not a useful word. He's not saying that because he's defending the Soviet Union. He was very opposed to the Soviet Union, but because he thinks it unhelpfully clumps together things that, that shouldn't be clumped together. He said things like that in the early 90s. I guess I do see much more of a break in his politics, not at 1989, but by the end of the 90s, certainly, and in some ways in the early 90s, because I think that his views on sort of America's role in the world shifted given his perception of the way that had changed in an altered post-war landscape. And also because I think very slowly over the course of the nineties, he had a hard time kind of continuing to, to keep the faith in his social convictions because it was a time period in which that was just so foreign to the mainstream that that really seemed to be off the table to a lot of people. Like I understand the phrase doesn't fully capture what Fukuyama was getting at, but you know, the end of history was the way that a lot of people really did see it at that time. And I think, very slowly that wore down on him. And I think both of those kind of come together in the way his politics shift later. But I do see a distinction. Like, I do think that when he would say later that, you know, what he was saying was just continuous with all of his older commitments. I think there's truth to that, but I also think there's falsity to that. I, I think that there, there is a sense in which in the commentary on the Cold War in the 80s, for example, you know, he did believe what he explicitly did not believe in the stuff that James is talking about with Iraq, that it's entirely possible to be opposed to two opposing sides at the same time without being an apologist for either one. You know, you don't have to choose between being a Brezhnev apologist and a Reagan apologist. You can oppose a war that's directed against an authoritarian regime without being pro-authoritarian. And, and that is, I think, to my mind, what gets lost in the, the final decade of his life. So, before we come on to Clinton, Janine, do you want to say
0: anything about that?
3: The break in 89 was not political. It was stylistic, is the Amos point. That literally the prose becomes less dense, less replete with that sort of Marxist verbiage, the abstract nouns, the many subclauses. He loosens up stylistically. I agree the political change isn't huge. I would say that being a revolutionary Trotskyist rather than a Stalinist communist is not a huge achievement, but that's a sort of political observation we can get into later. Stylistically, I think the break is pretty sharp. And I just don't think it can be a coincidence that he went from being at the nation and on C-SPAN at uh, 11 p.m. in front of not huge audiences to achieving what he did relatively late in life uh, over the course of the 1990s. And I think some of that was just down to the fact he became a, there was more swing and more flow Um, in the actual style of the writing compared to earlier on pre-'89.
0: Okay, so should we hear him from the 90s writing about someone he hated? Absolutely.
2: So it's from the Clinton essay about halfway through the book called A Hard Dog to Keep on the Porch. He's writing about the healthcare debate in 1993 at the beginning of the Clinton administration. And he says, of course, the cry of socialized medicine is one of the horriest slogans of the American right. So it had to be expected that there would be political confrontation. But for once, the all-important opinion polls were aligned solidly and consistently with reform. There was expertise to spare among specialists on the subject. One group in particular, based at the Harvard Medical School, proposed the equivalent of Canadian single payer or national health care plan, combined with a wide repository of benefits with a range of choice between different physicians. The Congressional Budget Office furthermore certified such a plan, as the most cost effective, not least because it would end the fantastically wasteful duplication and competition spawned by America's insurance racket. An early meeting at the White House between the Harvard Group and Hillary Clinton, the case for a straightforward national health bill was put by uh, Dr. David Himmelstein. As he recalls the exchange, it was evident that Hillary was thinking about politics. Can you realistically tell me, she asked, that there are any big powers that support single payer? That can take on the insurance industry's lobbying and advertising budget. I said about 70% of the uh, people in the United States favor something like single payer system. With presidential leadership, that could be an overwhelming force. She said, David, tell me something interesting. Though it was at the very beginning of the argument, the only possible winning hand was thrown into the discard. And I'm just gonna skip ahead to the very end for the, uh, the sake of time. By stressing the idea of no alternative, the non-ideological have redefined politics as a question of management and eviscerated the idea that the art of the possible is indeed an art of possibility. But they may have outsmarted themselves and their professional apparatus of consultants and pollsters and spinmeisters. The declining landscape of possibility, whether it is the prison state for young African-Americans or the return of indentured labor in California or the erosion of the First Amendment, or the collapse of environmental supervision, or the deregulated airline and food industries, or the free market of judges and legislators, now becomes their responsibility. The plea of a lesser evil will not displace it onto other shoulders. In their cleverness, the new class of the privileged have been slow to understand this. I hope to live long enough to see the day, not when they find it out, but when it is found out by the patient and the swindled and the trust in.
0: Do you think that the 90s, in a way, if we agree that, stylistically at least, that was part of when he found his voice, but there was, I mean, he was railing against this this new politics that to his mind, it was the great moderation that had nothing in it. And what made the 2000s, in a way, so fruitful and exhilarating for him, but created all of these divisions among his former allies, is that the, the, the 90s was the period where the thing he was raining against, it was too soft, and he was looking for something with more of an edge to it, and post 9-11 he found it? Or was that too simplistic? Quickly, I
3: I think that's exactly right. I think he wanted to live in more interesting times than he got to live in. And the way that shows up in the 90s is that he's groping around for targets. And so, he ends up with the Clintons, Mother Teresa, <laughs> and Henry Kissinger. And they are worthy targets in all sorts of ways. And his line of argument was persuasive, I I found. Compared to what he would have now or what he had in the following decade with al-Qaeda, it was so much more marginal. And I think the Kissinger book was really based on 30-year-old grievances, I mean, strong grievances, but it was essentially a retrospective work on Kissinger's career. He was having to grope around the most moderate phase in in world politics in his lifetime, to find targets who were equal to his anger. Um, So, there was that desire to live in more extreme, more turbulent times than he got to live in. And it's it's another reason why I think he'd be be in his element now, in a way that I don't think he quite was in the 1990s. Al-Qaeda, I think, the emergence of Al-Qaeda and the specific event of 9-11, sort of at the time gave him what he wanted. It was a a global struggle, huge issues involved, an enemy that was larger and more terrifying than anything he'd wrestled with before. But with the distance of 20 years from 9-11, you'd have to say that even that was a relatively small event compared to some of the stuff that happened afterwards, the global financial crash, the change and the challenge to democracy within the Western world. That we've seen over the past five or six years, even the big event that happened in his lifetime didn't turn out to be quite quite as large as he might have expected in 2001.
0: Lisa, Lisa do you think he would have been in his element now? I sometimes, I mean, and, and there is also the question of how he would cope—not just politically, but in the world of the cultural world of social media. Yes, There's I mean, I me think it would be too much. for him.
4: You know, I I was trying to think about Hitch. It's very hard with people that you've met and have been, in a sense, your generation to, to sort of think of the trajectories that they've been through and why they've taken certain kinds of choices. Reading this volume was very interesting because you could see that Hitch was always very hard on what he calls in in various ways, in the hanky spanky piece, uh, the left liberal idiocy of his times. So he's very hard on the Wilsons and the, you know, the Labour politicians. He's hard on the liberals. He hates the liberals. I mean, the Isaiah Berlin piece is a very nasty piece in some ways, although he keeps flattering Isaiah Berlin himself. He really doesn't like Isaiah's rise in society, such as it is, and how it seems to mask all kinds of lacks of courage and spying. And it's a very wily piece, perhaps to match something else. But in any case, he's very, very hard on them, as hard as he is on the right. And so throughout this time, he is, from my point of view, as I understand my generation, he's he's still being a critical Marxist intellectual. In other words, there is, you can, from the point of view of being a Marxist socialist, Trotskyist, (laughs) you have a very, very good critical angle on the whole world and what's wrong with it and what hypocrisy is and how things don't live up to where you want them to be. And the Clintons and the left liberals or even the kind of middle liberals, the American Democrats, fall into what he despises most of all. The hard guys are worthy of a fight. And he begins to actually take on those hard guys when he lives in America. You know, he's a conservative Marxist, you could say. I don't know if any, if this sort of resonates with anybody else. But to me, I could almost level the the use of the narcissism of small differences at him. Uh, so that, you know, his position and the left liberal positions that he Carries on attacking are not very far apart, (laughs) but they cause civil war, they they cause a lot of acrimony and pugilism and so on. But when you get to the big guys, (laughs) the big, you know, right wing guys, yes, he's suddenly there, you know, they're fighters that can be, that seem to be full of courage. Anyhow, I'll I'll stop. But that's my sense of him at the moment.
0: So James, do you think that so now there are some there would be some people for him to take on? Do you think he would be relishing this, or as I was saying, in a way relative even to post 9/11, there's almost too much in the sort of Hitchens uh, line of fire. You wouldn't, he wouldn't even know where to turn.
1: No, I, I you know, it'd be interesting because uh, 2016, you'd have to say, well, would he have supported Trump or not supported Trump, because. We know, I don't see him politically aligned with Trump, but his hatred of Hillary Clinton was so engulfing that I could easily imagine him swinging both ways. I could easily imagine him having an affinity with Steve Bannon, you know, uh, because there's Steve Bannon is a ruffian. And uh, there's something about Steve Bannon, the kind of pirate aspect that appeals to certain people on the left. They sort of long, I, why don't we have a Steve, you know, Bannon? The thing is, I do feel he would have really, he would have come fully alive, he was always fully alive, with, with the whole cancel culture. And I like to think that he would have been consistent. He wouldn't have been just going after the kind of academic, woke brigade uh, and all of that, but he also would have castigated the, what's happening now, which is books being pulled off of school shelves. And libraries. I think he would have been consistent in defense of free speech. But it's very hard to know because sometimes what we think of as as deep embedded conviction can be simply of all of a sudden you just realize you don't like certain people or you don't like that side. And then social media makes it worse because social media, you can see where all the divisions are. You know, the people who are still saying now Bernie would have won. And then the, the ones who blame Bernie for every, you know, there's, that would have been, he would have had a hard time to transcend it. And one last thing is, where would he have published now? Because no no public, no magazine would have been able to afford his price tag. The And it's not specific to him, but the days of the big contracts are over. My guess is he would have followed Andrew Sullivan's lead and, Glenn Greenwald and others, and he would have started a Substack account, and it would be hugely successful because he would have a big following. And we know that he was an incredible producer. He would Hitchens was not somebody who woke up in the morning and go, Well, what do I write about now? I, you know, it wasn't like William Buckley, how do I pull things out of the air? His machinery was always wheels were always spinning. So I think he would have been a, a Substack superstar for whatever that's worth.
0: I, I, I have to say, I tend to agree, you know, we live in an age where there is a premium on volume, and my God, he was good at, at mm-hmm. volume apart from anything else. So, we got some questions coming out. I just want to ask one more before I come on to some of these. Uh, and it touched on what Lisa was saying. So, that Berlin essay in this collection, which is definitely worth rereading, it is quite nasty. It's also uh, sort of exhilarating mm-hmm. in many ways. But when you read it, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's read it and thought, so he's he's taking on Isaiah Berlin as someone who has these kind of magisterial judgments, and though Berlin it's from in theory a position of sort of moderation, nonetheless there's there's the impression of an overarching sort of intellectual framework which allows Isaiah Berlin to place people, and and then to judge them, and yet the implication is it's much more arbitrary than that. It's much more personal than that. It's much more to do with human frailties and foibles and ambitions and so on. And as I read it, I thought, well, so too of Christopher Hitchens. I mean, you know, there is a sense, as you read this collection, that that there are all of these judgments being made and and they have this magisterial air to them. But, you know, James, as you were suggesting, it sometimes feels like it was the person he hated that day. And much of what he says about Berlin, I don't know, Ben, whether you agree with this, but much of what he says about Berlin could apply to himself. Yeah,
2: I mean, I'm sure some of it could. I did just want to say, I mean, I do see some bigger ideological consistencies over the course of his career, although I also think there are big shifts. I'm not even convinced that stylistically, you know, like the 80s to the 90s is that, you know, I, I think he got better over the decades, right, as people will do. But I think if you read his essays for the 1980s, for the sake of argument, minority reports, those collections for the 80s and 90s. Uh, I, I think there are plenty of essays for the 80s where where he's stylistically very very good. He's certainly not weighed down by abstract verbiage. I also think it does make sense to me that he had the problem with Clinton that he he had. I mean, I don't think those are small differences. I think those are, I think those are pretty profound differences. And I do think we could probably say things, at least a few things about where he might have ended up. Obviously, there's a speculative element, right? I mean, th- there's a there's the extent to which you can only say your guess is you know is as good as mine, but I do think on the on the issue that James raised about Trump, I actually think that's one of the thi- that's one of the few things that I feel absolutely confident about what his position would have been. I think that it's possible that he could have had a pox on their houses attitude in, in 2016. I don't think that's out of the question. Uh, he could go back to his position in the 2000 election when he supported Ralph Nader and just and just said, don't you know don't vote for any of these people. But I actually think that for a lot of reasons, both personal and political and, and more deeply ideological, I think that almost the only position I actually could not imagine him having is
4: support for Trump. Well, certainly Martin would have been very upset.
2: Yeah, uh, although I will, I will say uh, one, of my, one of my all-time favorite Hitchens exchanges is the one in 2002 uh, with Martin Davis on exactly the issue that janon mentioned earlier about whether there's that big a difference between Trotskyism and Stalinism. And and like for being a, a public exchange with a very close friend, Hitchens is absolutely savage in, in that exchange. Like my favorite entry in it is a piece he wrote in The Guardian that's a uh, an open letter to Amos about the claims that he was making that like Amos doesn't really understand what the big deal was supposed to be about this difference. Is not communism equals communism equals communism? You know, what's what's the big deal? And the title of Hitchens's piece, which is also contained within the piece, is "Don't Period Be Period Silly Period." And and I, I even after long after, I mean, he hadn't been a Trotskyist since the early '70s. This is 2002. He's gone much further than that since then. He's said in the previous year, letters to Young Contrarian, that he doesn't think socialism. You know, he regrets it, but he doesn't think it's on the table historically anymore. But even so, I think he's too intellectually honest to accept equating those two things.
3: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity
4: insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
0: We've got, we've got a question here, not about what he would have thought of Trump, but what he would have thought of Corbyn. And James mentioned Sanders too. But had he lived to see the, the second half of the last decade, particularly in British politics, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he would have found the humour in it, because a lot of it was ridiculous. But what would he, Janan? do you have a sense of what he would have made of Corbyn? I think Corbyn personally, different question, but the Corbyn project.
3: My guess is that Corbyn's foreign policy would have put him off that so any sympathy there may have been in, in domestic affairs and the idea of a, a big economic break in policy would have been overwhelmed by what he would have seen as Corbyn's moral relativism and reluctance to defend the West, and that would have that would have been the decisive factor. But, that, again, it is only guesswork. What we can do, I suppose, is, you know, he did catch the very beginnings of populism. Uh, I think there is an essay, or at least part of an essay, about the Tea Party, in 2010, one of the later essays. And he's, what I would say was was sound on the issue. You know, he was anti the Tea Party. There was no splitting of differences or a, an attempt to come up with a, a clever equivocation. He was pretty pretty clear-eyed on that stuff. And so, if you extrapolate forward, I imagine he would arrive in a position now where he was happy to oppose right-wing populism and what he would have seen as very relativist left-wing, anti-Western foreign policy, with more or less equal vigour.
0: Does does anyone differ on that?
4: I was really wondering what uh, Janan and and Ben and D. James thought his position might have been on Brexit, because I think that is not exactly the same. I think the the Corbyn question, to me, if I put myself in Hitch's shoes, would have been in part an aesthetic question. And I think there would have been problems there. Uh, That may not be true of his followers. I think he might have had more time for them. (laughs) Jonan.
3: Because I think in the book here, there's the the debate between the two brothers is captured beautifully. And uh, one area of difference between Peter and Christopher is the EU. And Christopher, to my surprise, makes a positive case for the EU as the foundation of post-war European peace whereas I'd always detected that he he would he would have regarded it as overly technocratic, a pro-market institution. He didn't hate it, but I always thought he'd be kind of very, very cool or lukewarm about it. And instead, he comes to its defense. Maybe that's just out of the exigencies and the necessities of a debate on stage with your brother. But I hope, and, and I, I'm choosing to extrapolate, from that debate, that he would have, he would have voted Remain and, and defended it pretty vociferously. But that's probably wishful, wishful thinking on my part.
2: I, I mean, I, I think he would have. I mean, I think that that was to a great extent like the Conway Hall debate in 1999. That was to a great extent what it was about. I don't think that was just a position he was kind of taking it on the fly. I think that, I think that that was very deeply what what he thought. He, he says repeatedly, people who want uh, Britain to leave the EU want to reduce it to a uh, offshore Serbia is the uh, is the phrase he uses a couple of times and and I think partially he was he hoped that sort of the eu and its ability to impose certain kinds of human rights standards on various nations like I think that was very important to him I think again I think it's linked to the sort of declining belief in some sort of more radical left-wing alternative that you know that he thinks that at least these kinds of institutions you know can have some kind of civilizing effect They'll be positive. And I do think he definitely would have hated right-wing populism or, you know, what, what you know what passes for it. Not just like on the Trump question, but we can look at what little he said about Trump. He uh, In 2000, when Trump was also ran for the Reform Party nomination, oddly enough, he refers to him in a column in The Nation as a nutball, narcissistic tycoon. One of the only place I could see on video where he talks about Trump. He's on C-SPAN. And he says, as far as I can tell, the only thing that's impressive about Donald Trump is that he found a way to cover 90% of his skull with 10% of his hair. I I think there's obviously that personal dislike, but also I think politically, I think he did very deeply hate racial bigotry. That was actually a big theme of his. In post-2001, he continued to advocate reparations for slavery. That is a position he held in debate and in print. And, you know, you can read the uh, shortly after Obama became president, there was a Glenn Beck rally in Washington, D.C., where, you know which Hitchens describes as the water world of white self-pity. So I think that, like, I think he would have been very hostile both for that, for the, by perspective, good reasons, but also even on the basis of what I would see as his worst late positions on foreign policy, I think there would have still been, there would have been a different source of hostility there because I think above all else, he hated that kind of conservative, what he would see as very cynical kind of right-wing isolationism, which is exactly the rhetoric, at least. I don't think the practice really matched it, but the rhetoric of the 2016 Trump campaign, that, you know, that Trump literally brought back the Lindbergh slogan, you know, America first. I think he would have absolutely despised that. I also agree with Janan that he, I think that for various reasons, he would have disliked Corbyn. I I think that that's true. On the other hand, by the time all of that came up. I mean, you know, he'd, he'd been living in America for decades and become an American citizen in 2007. He might have been much more focused on what was going on in uh, American politics than British politics. And given that, I think it's a little bit more complicated because whereas I do have a hard time imagining Hitchens as as a you know having a friendly view about Jeremy Corbyn, I actually think that what he would have thought about Bernie Sanders is a little bit less clear because I think Bernie in 2016 especially, was was much less identified with the sorts of things about Corbyn, you know, with regard to foreign policy that, you know, that, that Hitchens uh, would have hated. I think, you know, obviously he would have had lots of foreign policy disagreements, you know, that Sanders was very, very opposed to the invasion of Iraq and all of that. But I think it's possible that despite that, he he would have been. I can imagine a version of Hitchens who did, maybe with some criticisms and caveats, Support Bernie Sanders because I mean basically two reasons. One having to do with the passage that I read that like he was extremely critical of the Clintons and of Hillary Clinton uh, specifically on exactly the issues that were dominant in that 2016 primary campaign between Bernie and Hillary. In in, in his book, no one left a lie to about the Clintons. He's he's extremely harsh on uh, the Clintons' welfare reform and the sort of Dickensian way that, that played out in practice. And also because there was a moment in the 2016 campaign when Hillary Clinton, you know, like described Henry Kissinger as a trusted friend and advisor and Bernie Sanders, I'm not going to try to imitate him, I do a terrible Bernie, but he said, proud to say, you know, Henry Kissinger is not my friend and I, I have to think of nothing else, that's a moment that might have stirred something because throughout his life, however much he might have changed or anything else, I mean, if his hatred was pure with regard to any one individual in the world, it would have to be Henry Kissinger.
0: James, do you have a view on on, uh,
1: Hitchens on Sanders? This is something that's spoken about privately. But the social media, uh, whether you want to call it wokeness or the sort of pile on that happens on social media, to someone like Hitchens, it would be much more likely to come from the left than the right because the left, the online left, is fairly merciless. And that is the kind of thing that would have, I don't think it would have pushed Hitchens to the right, but I think it would have made him feel like, I don't have allies on that side anymore because they are looking for ways to cancel me. And I think part of that is I think, and I don't say this is is credit or discredit, I think he wouldn't have hesitated to go on Joe Rogan's show. I don't think he would have let anybody tell him to go on that show. He was, a, I think he would have tried to be as independent as he could. I, but I think a lot of the pressure would have come more from the left. And one thing that, that I don't know if, if Britain, people in Britain are aware of this in the US, one of the, the residual hostilities towards Hitchens is he wrote a column for Vanity Fair about why women aren't funny. And I cannot tell you how many times when his name comes up on Twitter, someone chimes in, oh, this is a guy who thought women aren't funny. They may know nothing else about Hitchin, but that thing they've attached to, or it's attached to them, he he would have been facing a much different world of, of kind of uh, omni-theatrical war. You know? And I think if anybody could have handled it, he could have, you know, he could have handled it. But it would have been
0: there and, uh, you know. We've got a question here that I'm going to read out. Maybe Lisa, you want to take this first. The current heat in public discourse is arguably driven by most people being passionate about politics rather than interested in it and its complexities. The hitch's rarity is that he was passionate but also wrote brilliantly. Would it be possible to write as well if the writer pursues truth obsessively ahead of passion?
4: Oh, that's a difficult question. That's a good really question. difficult question. It's a very good question. But, you know, I think in the act of writing, these two sometimes get confused. You know, Hitch wrote articles mostly, and he did it in, uh, from what I can understand when you read them. I mean, they are a great burst of passion. <laughs> but his is, is, it's a very worked and skilled and, and honed form of passion, so that he knows what he's doing as a prose writer. I mean, it just comes out of him in that way. And he's also hugely intelligent. Truth is is a funny one, because, you know, if you're doing an article about something, uh, truth is not something that's immediately visible necessarily, particularly not in the passage of politics. Truth may be visible later if what we're talking about is truth rather than fact. So, I don't know how to answer that. Maybe maybe the journalists in the room or more journalists than I am. David, you haven't spoken. Well, how would you answer that question? <laughs> I want to hear from you, please, <laughs> come on. I'm taking yeah. participants' prerogative here to ask the chair to speak.
0: I mean, I think it's a good question. I mean, apart from anything else is, I mean, I also think about what James was saying about the sort of, you know, I can't remember what phrase you used just now, but the kind of omni, omni-something theatricality of the current climate where you have to sort of, No, it's it's firefighting on all fronts. And what comes across in reminiscences of him in the in the LRB collection is his extraordinary. I mean, the speed and stamina with which he did these things. He wrote quickly. He clearly wrote quickly. We haven't talked about the drinking, but everyone has a story about how at the end of an evening where they were incapacitated, he went off and turned out a thousand words on some subject or the other. But it, it almost feels now like there's a there's a heightened quality to the, the passion, the what you have to deal with. Feed won't save you in the in twenty twenty two. No one can be quick enough now. You know, he he's a journalist of the print age. So I'm sure James is right, Substack would have been his medium. But the, it, it just almost feels to me like it's not so much a question about truth and passion, but the the different scales at which this kind of passionate engagement with politics runs now. Could overwhelm anyone, including him. You can't drink all night and then turn out a thousand words, except on the Substack. If you're going to fight these fights, the fights seem to me to potentially to would have been overwhelming. We, there are some questions we've got here about other aspects of foreign policy, about religion, Brants, laïcité, the the idea of somehow keeping up of the dem, with the demand on his passion. Also, it's you know, I feel dizzy just thinking about it. That's it's not really an answer to the question, but that's. My sense of it—he was a writer for the 1990s and the 2000s. The medium suited him. Jann, do you think he would have? have you you said in your in your piece about the ten years on from his death that this was the time for him. Yeah, Uh, but it feels this—I said it earlier—it's too much.
3: It it is too much. I, I wonder whether he would have reacted to the political passion of today by defending the idea of the uncommitted. Life. I mean, he comes across as the most committed person you've ever seen, he's got views on everything, was political from a young age. But he might have found, as I think lots of our viewers might find, the political temperature today just a bit oppressive. And the idea that everyone has to, view, has to have a view and an expressed view around the clock, he would find that oppressive and maybe a bit philistine because it allows no room for, for example, literature as literature. And remember, you know, you you can have a great life as a Hitchens reader without ever getting into the politics, just reading the literary essays, which are non-political, non-structuralist, you know, they treat literature as literature. He might defend the idea of an uncommitted life as quite a radical, liberal or progressive statement at a time when the world expects you to have um, a politicized take on every aspect of life from sport to art to human relations or language and pronouns, he might regard it as actually quite a bold and interesting and civilized thing to have a component of your life that is non-political. And therefore, I it's a, it's a perverse thing to suggest because, it, you know, having been engagé for the first 60 years of his life, it would be quite a sharp turn to make. But given that he was always countervailing, he was always going against the zeitgeist as far as he could, it wouldn't shock me if a Hitchens now would be more, sorry, less politicized, less ideological, precisely because everyone else is more politicized and more ideological.
0: And I, I should add that people who haven't read it a hitch in time, it's not just a book of political essays by any yeah. means. Yeah. essays on you know you, you can read him on PG Woodhouse and get the pleasure of that and you you don't have to worry about some of the things we've been talking about here. There's a question at which I'm going to broaden out a bit. I mean, the, the question straightforwardly is, what would he have made of climate change? I mean, climate change is not simply a phenomenon that's occurred since his death, but there is a, I think, a real question about what he would have made of the apocalypticism, if that's the word, of, of contemporary politics. Not just around climate change, but there is a, there's an apocalyptic feel. There's a sometimes a, a, an indulgence or a wallowing in it, and my suspicion is. That related to his views about religion, that he would hate it. But there's a lot of it about. And what do you think, what would he have made of some of the doomier stuff that comes on the left now around uh, our prospects over the next couple of decades?
2: Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, this is this is a really hard one, because if he if he wrote anything that would that would give, like, indications of it, I haven't read it, or I certainly can't think of it if I have. I do just want to say briefly on the on the previous point, I do agree with Janan about that. And like, I think there are things that he'd already written that would point in that direction. Like about, you know, he would frequently say that he hated the the slogan "the personal is political," and you know, and 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 wanted to to maintain a non political sphere, which is a position I'm very sympathetic to. But on climate change, I guess the worried impulses would be that on the one hand, certainly in the new atheist years, he, he put a lot of premium on science and what we could learn from science. And, and, and so I, I have a very hard time imagining him, I suppose, falling into sort of climate denialism. But on the other hand, I, I definitely see what you mean about how he, he might've kind of instinctively disliked, you know, and, and, and sort of wanted to, to sort of put, pour some cold water on apocalypticism about it. Uh, I suppose it's possible he would have he would have taken a position sort of along the lines of like what somebody like Lee Phillips does, which is which is just to say yes, this is something we should take seriously, but also calm down about the end of the world stuff. If anything, this is like something that you the solution is to you know is 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 to like lean harder and developing new technology and you know things like that, and that's that's going to have to be the the sort of core of it since if nothing else, I think one thing that would incline him towards that position is just aesthetic that like, I mean, any, any sort of like, anything that sounded like a council of self-denial, I have a hard time imagining sitting well with him.
4: You know, second guessing Hitch, I think it's, we're onto a lost cause here. <laughs> because I think, you know, it's not as if he has overall arching views, um, or what you might call politics. He has a lot of you know, instant responses to things which are very, very passionate and very felt and lead you into larger positions, but aren't necessarily a statement of larger positions themselves. I mean, really, what I what I really want to say is that even when I totally disagree with Hitch, I really enjoy reading him. <laughs> it's an awful thing to say, but there's something about the kind of energy that he puts into his prose and his argument, his way of arguing, which just enlivening, even though you know, you want to scream back, shout back, never write back, probably.
2: That's actually kind of what I talk about at the very end of the book, that, like, that that is that is something rare and I think increasingly rare, maybe due to some of the economic changes in media that uh, that James alluded to earlier that uh, I think make it sort of encourage hot takes over, over the more substantive writing that, you know, Hitchens tended to do. But that, you know, that that quality, the exact thing that Lisa is talking about, that, like, you could read something that you that you hated his position, and still sort of mutter under your breath, "Okay, that's a really good," you know. And I mean, it made you think in a way that I think in the sorts of outlets that Hitchens actually wrote for. I he wrote. I mean, I don't think they'd have him now, but you know, he wrote for Slate for year, you know, years in the last decade. I think it precisely in those, those sorts of outlets that writing has become incredibly rare.
1: Also had a, a, a theatrical quality, which is more. But something that was more ingrained in a lot of writers of his generation is now completely lost. Uh, when you're just opinionizing, when you're just formulating your argument, I mean, the whole beginning of that piece of, were about Margaret Thatcher and her coming in, it's theatrically presented. I mean, he sets the scene, he sets who the extras are, and then there's a, the payoff of her doing it. You're not, you could read 200 substacks by all the supposed, you know, free thinkers and, you know, the whole, the whole them. You would never get that because they don't have any kind of theatrical imagination and ability to create scenes along with the argument and the documentation. And, uh, I, you know, that's something that's, that's very much lost. And I don't think, I don't think he, he ever lost that. I was going to say that
0: um, so, you know, many of the questions that we've had are along the lines of what, what, what do we think that Hitch would have thought about this? What would he have thought about that? And it's hard. I think it's hard to think of a writer today, dead for ten years, of whom there is still that fancy of what would Christopher think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's. I don't think it's necessarily just because people want to know which side he'd be on. I mean, and you get it when you read these essays. You would just love to read him on. I mean, it doesn't matter which side he's on, right? You'd love to see him taking apart Joe Biden, whatever you think of Joe Biden, just because it would be fun and it would be funny. You'd love to see him uh, on Macron, on, just just for the fun uh, of it.
1: Yeah, Partygate. Yeah, All exactly. the different <laughs> aspects of Partygate. And, well, we were not aware when we walked in a room that a cake was present, you know, that sort of thing. He would have just, he would have gone to town on that. I would, as someone uh, who's just... there, uh, would have flown him over to London. You know, you've
0: got to get yourself into a party. As someone who spent too much time reading and then writing about Dominic Cummings, I'd much rather have read Hitchens on Cummings than anything else. i was going to think say. I ask
4: you that behind the scenes. I mean, you know, reading Cummings is impossible.
0: Thank you all very much. Thanks to everyone for uh, for the excellent questions and um, thanks for a really interesting discussion. If you want to buy a Hitch in time with a, a really uh, lovely introduction by James Walcott, or if you want to buy if you want to buy any of Christopher Hitchins's books or if you want to buy Ben's book about Christopher Hitchens, all of them have been beautifully curated for your ability to purchase at the LRB bookshop online. You just have to go to lrb.me slash Hitchens and they're all there and you can take your pick or you could buy all of them. So Just go to lrb.me slash Hitchens and you can find all the reading you could want. And I think we all agree, including Ben's book, all worth reading. Thank you all very much for joining us. Uh, And you can also find more about LRB events coming up, of course, on the LRB website.
3: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.